a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, can I ask a small favor as we get things started? If you are on Facebook, I know it's it's antiquated. It's, you know, it's rapidly approaching the same dinosaur status as MySpace. Neater, cooler, more hip things have come along. But if you are one of those people who has a presence on Facebook, would you do me this favor and just bebop on over to The Brian Hyde Show? Should be pretty easy to find. You'll know it. Uh, there's no mistaking my moniker. And my my mug that shows up on there. And just like the page. That's all I'm asking. I'm going to be making this page the focal point for a lot of the different articles that I talk about, uh, as well as uh, sharing uh, original content that I will be writing. But I'm just trying to get the word out. There's, uh, you know, it, as easy as it sounds, there's there's a lot of work to uh, to creating and maintaining that online presence. And it's something I've been getting an education in here of late, and I'm just inviting you to uh, help me get the word out so that people can know about this podcast, this broadcast, and, of course, some of the other information out there. My goal at the end of the day is to provide you with encouragement, you know, with, with a, a sense of, of optimism, and hopefully fill your psychological cup. Yes, we're going to talk about difficult truths. We'll talk about them, though, in a way that leaves you feeling better about yourself, more confident about what's going on, at least in, in your understanding of it, and also genuinely understanding how to use your influence to get things resolved. Deal? Okay. Where do we start today? You've heard the saying, everyone has their price, right? Maybe someone has said it to you. Come on, we all have our price. You, uh, you know, you just... Uh, <laughs> You wave enough money in front of somebody and eventually they're going to cave in. And it makes me think about the joke of uh, the, the guy who approaches this attractive woman at the bar and he uh, asks her, so uh, would you spend the night with me for a million dollars? And she looks at him and boy, he's, he's attractive. He's well-dressed. He appears to be a man of some means. And she thinks for a moment and she says, sure, why not? He says, excellent. Now, would you spend the night with me for $25? And she's like, of, of course not. What kind of woman do you think I am? To which he responds, well, we've already established what kind of woman you are. Now we just need to establish a price. I know, it stings. Zing! That's a, that's a pretty tough one. And while we're able to see this in other people, right? Well, we can certainly see where this politician's price was. This is where he or she sold out. It's rare for us to ask this question about ourselves. And really, come on, think about it. That's where our focus should be. That's the question every one of us should be asking. What is my price? At what point would I be willing to, and it's not necessarily a monetary thing, just to, to give in. At what point would I yield because I felt like the incentive was strong enough? You kind of see where this is headed, right? I mean, it could apply to, uh, will I wear a mask in public or won't I? Will I take this job which requires me to sell poison to people 
I'm going to be vague with that because I don't want anybody who sells cigarettes to be like, hey, what, what are you talking about? Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. Sorry, I had to think hard about that last one there has a terrific article about the choice that voters will face as they head to the polls this fall and particularly what their price is. How much should you be willing to sell your vote for this November? I want you to consider what he has to say here. He says one of the few nice things about the hyperpartisanship currently enveloping the American political scene is that it sometimes opens up avenues of liberty long considered impossible, like selling your vote to the highest bidder. Until the late 19th century, it was American as apple pie for voters to favor one side or another based on sundry types of side payments, from punch parties to lease extensions, cash undoubtedly traded hands too, under the table, as Americans used to say. Now, votes could be exchanged because voting was not secret, so bargains could be enforced, if only extra-legally. Early Americans voted viva voce, or by voice, or simply by paper ballot. Pieces of paper typically provided by slates of candidates or their minions. The so-called Australian or secret ballot introduced in the U.S. in the late 19th century made it extremely difficult to trade votes because a voter could renege by receiving a favor from X while secretly voting for Y. Progressives considered this an improvement because it removed the direct link between money and electoral outcomes, but it ultimately benefited all politicians at the expense of voters because it changed the game to one of trading mere policy promises for votes. Now, politicians sometimes delivered pork for their constituents, but more often they delivered excuses about how they were blocked by the bad guys in the other party. Many voters preferred the good old days when at least they received something tangible in return for their support. Soon, though, Americans forgot about vote-selling and increasingly wondered why they should bother to vote at all, particularly when shown irrefutable mathematical proof that voting to sway elections was, in almost all instances, irrational. Absentee balloting was an effort to keep up voter participation by allowing those with some excuse, like illness or travel, to vote by mail. And for a long time, the number of such ballots were too few to matter, so it was in no one's interest to purchase them. Today, however, universal vote by mail and no excuse absentee balloting is big enough to sway elections. According to Brookings, nearly one quarter of the ballots cast in 2016 were by mail. Now, while it remains technically illegal to sell one's vote, adults generally realize that just because something is illegal does not mean that it won't happen, especially when money is involved. Brookings insists that voting by mail provides no partisan advantage and that sufficient safeguards are in place to prevent fraud, which means by which it means partisans concocting or destroying votes. But past experience, as any investor knows, is no guarantee of future performance. And the thought that a market in votes could develop doesn't seem to have occurred to its brilliant scholars. But just imagine a knock at the door. A masked individual with kind eyes and non-threatening body language beseeches a few moments of your time to discuss the crisis facing this country. You demur, citing lack of time or interest. Out comes a $20 bill and the hint that there may be more. You stash the cash, invite the person in, and soon admit that you think both major party candidates are bums. Out comes a green portrait of Benjamin Franklin and a request that you grab your vote-by-mail form. 
Just sign here, says the masked stranger, who then checks a few boxes and seals the envelope. Now sign here, pointing to the envelope flap. I'll take care of the rest. This is the mail voting procedure outlined by Brookings. The stranger leaves conveniently for getting money brandished earlier on your kitchen table. But is $100 enough? You might find out that your neighbor held out for 1000 or even 10000 It's not like you can complain to the government for getting ripped off. Even if you did, will the jury believe the word of a vote seller? Can you even identify a masked individual? Could you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the stranger did not honestly forget the money on your table? Or maybe Franklin, like the Jackson, was a payment for your time rather than your vote. So it would be most efficient in terms of voter surplus if the government simply made it legal to sell one's vote so swing voters in purple states or districts could hold an auction and be sure of receiving the equilibrium price. Presumably, voters votes in true blue or red or dead districts would remain nearly valueless, creating incentives for lawmakers to engage in yet more gerrymandering. It might also create positive externalities for almost everyone by diverting campaign spending away from those annoying advertisements and toward vote buying. Overall, though, vote buying could prove disastrous for government by turning our government into the equivalent of an 18th century French tax farm. Under that notorious system, French businesses paid the king a lump sum for the right to collect, farm, or harvest certain taxes in specified areas for a given length of time. Eager to recoup their investment and turn a profit, the tax farmers tended to be brutally exploitative. U.S. politicians arguably face similar incentives as they try to turn a political profit on their campaign expenditures, but vote exchange could well exacerbate matters. Moreover, without a legal market, many resources will be lost in transaction costs like paying and monitoring the masked stranger knock, knock, knocking on your door. So ultimately, of course, each individual has to decide if, when, where, how, and for how much they will sell their vote this fall. All that can be said for certain is that in most states it's now quite possible to do so, and that the masked stranger doesn't even have to work for a political party or candidate. In fact, Vote buying solves problems for donors by ensuring maximum effect for each dollar spent and by sidestepping campaign finance laws. Quite an interesting experiment in self-governance, this country of ours. So says Robert E. Wright. I'll include it in the show notes, which you can find at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you would like to join the conversation, there is ample opportunity, provided that you can operate a telephone. You know, the uh, rotary type. Okay, actually, a touch tone would work as well. 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. Still seeing a lot of talk about masks. I mean, what was it? Walmart just announced that as of July 20th, anybody entering their store is going to be required to wear a mask. And I'm, I'm still very torn on this in the sense that I have to respect the private property of a business owner. And, and if they say, well, you got to wear a mask to be here, that is their prerogative to do so. 
So while, you know, I know there, there we have some crusaders here in my home state of Utah who are going out there and, you know, they're, they're challenging. Every Thursday they go out and they challenge and they do flash mobs and we're going to show them and we'll show up and, and insist and protest that people let us in without a mask. And I get that they, they are trying to stand up for personal freedoms. I don't know if they're understanding that the, the optics of what they're doing is probably driving people away from their position and, and into the arms of the mask enforcers. There's something to be said for diplomacy. And if, if, you're, if you're a tad too strident, you're probably shooting yourself in the foot. But boy, it is, it is catching on. And I see people who sincerely want to understand, look, why, why won't you wear your mask? What is it? Is it just a matter of, you know, I, I, just, uh, I, I just want my freedom? That's part of it. And I don't know how to describe this. Maybe you can help me. If, you've, if you have a better way of putting this, I'm, I'm all ears. 801-331-8113. The problem that I have is this is not just about masks. What is being done? This requirement of uh, everyone wearing the mask and then, you know, everyone standing six feet apart and then everyone hopping on their right leg when they stand in this aisle, but left leg if it's in this aisle. It feels wrong. And I know that's a really rational response. Well, Brian, thank you for breaking that down and scientifically demonstrating that, you know, why you don't want to do this. But I think for people who are paying attention, some part of your soul is screaming. This is not right. And the the conclusion that I've come to, right or wrong, I mean, I'm open to more information. I'm open to more truth. But this feels like conditioning. This feels like a test in which we are being pushed to see how far will we go before we draw the line and say enough, no more. And it appears that the vast majority of people not leaning on, you know, solid science and medical advice, but, you know, instead leaning on just, you know, desire. Well, I just I just want this all to go away. I want the economy to be open. I want I want to show that I care for other people. OK, these are legitimate concerns. But the division that's arisen between them and the people who don't want to toe that line, the skeptics, if you will. It's very unnerving. And moreover, I think it keeps us divided and it keeps us uh, keeps our awareness away from the real enemy. If I can borrow a phrase from uh, the Mockingjay. Don't forget who the real enemy is. It's not the person who's not wearing a mask. It's not the person who's wearing a mask. It's not even the poor person sitting there at the doorway to the grocery store saying, uh, do you have a mask? You need to put your mask on. It's the people who would exploit crisis for the sake of expanding their own power found a great article on the von mises institute website mises.org m-i-s-e-s.org the covid19 panic shows us why science needs skeptics this is by peter saint Ange, and listen to some of the observations he makes here now you don't have to agree with him but i think he's got some pretty good food for thought here he says the dumpster fire of covid predictions has shown exactly why it's important to sustain and nurture skeptics, lest we blunder into a scientific monoculture and groupthink. And yet the explosion of cancel culture intolerance of any opinion that doesn't fit a shrinking three-by-five card of right-think risks destroying the very tolerance in science that sustains our civilization. 
Since World War II, America has suffered two respiratory pandemics comparable to COVID-19. The 1958 Asian flu and then the 1969 Hong Kong flu. In neither case did we shut down the economy. People were simply more careful. Not all that careful, of course. Jimi Hendrix was playing at Woodstock in the middle of the 1969 pandemic, and social distancing really wasn't a thing in the summer of love. And yet COVID-19 was a very different thing, was very different thanks to a single buggy mess of a computer prediction from one Neil Ferguson, a British epidemiologist given to hysterical overestimates of deaths from mad cow to bird flu to H1N1. For COVID-19, Ferguson predicted 3 million deaths in America unless we basically shut down the economy. Panicked policymakers took his prediction as gospel, dressed it addressed as it was in the cloak of science. Now, long after governments plunged half the world into a Great Depression, those panicked revisions are being quietly revised down by an order of magnitude, now suggesting a final tally comparable to 1958 and 1969. COVID-19 would have been a deadly pandemic, with or without Ferguson's fantasies. But had we known the true scale and parameters of the threat, we might have chosen better tailored means to both safeguard the elderly and at risk while sustaining the wider economy. After all, economists have long known that mass unemployment and widespread bankruptcies carry enormous health consequences that are very real to the victims suffering drained life savings, ruined businesses, broken families, widespread mental and physical health deterioration, even suicide. Decisions involve trade-offs. COVID-19 has illustrated the importance of free and robust inquiry. After all, panicked politicians facing media accusations of killing grandma aren't in a very good position to evaluate these trade-offs. And they need intellectual ammunition, not only to show them which path is best, but to bolster them when a left-wing media establishment attacks. Moreover, voters need this ammunition so they can actually tell the politicians what to do. This means two things. Debate that is transparent and debate that is tolerant of skeptics. Transparency means data and computer code open to public scrutiny as the minimum requirement for any study that is used to justify policy, from lockdowns to carbon taxes to whatever comes next. These studies must be based on verifiable facts, code that does what it says it does, <clears throat> and the, the ensuing decision-making process must be transparent and open to the public. One former Indian bureaucrat put it well, emergency situations like this pandemic should require a far higher, not lower, level of scrutiny, since policy choices have such tremendous impact. This suggests a need for democracies to strengthen their critical thinking capacity by creating an independent black hat institution whose purpose would be to question any technical foundations of government decisions. Now, Peter St. Ange says, even more important than transparency Debate must be tolerant of alternative opinions. This means ideas that are wrong, offensive, even dangerous, have to be tolerated, even celebrated. Now, by all means, refute them. Most alternative hypotheses are completely wrong, so it shouldn't be hard to simply refute them without censorship. This, after all, is the essence of science, to generate hypotheses testable by anybody, not just licensed experts. Whether we are faced with a new crisis, a new policy innovation, or simply designing a better mousetrap, groupthink and censorship are recipes for disaster and stagnation, 
Full transparency and tolerance of new ideas are the very essence of progress. Indeed, it is largely this scientific tolerance that allowed us to rise up from the long, brutal darkness of poverty. As Francis Bacon observed 300 years ago, innovation and new knowledge do not come from prestigious learned insiders. Rather, progress comes from the questioner, the tinkerer, the skeptic. He said the industry of artificers maketh some small improvement of things invented, and chance sometimes in experimenting maketh us to stumble upon what somewhat which is new. But all the disputation of the learned never brought light brought to light one effect of nature before unknown. All right, we'll come back to this in a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to The Brian Hyde Show, 801-331-8113. I've been sharing this article from Peter St. Ange. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but it's a marvelous piece on why the COVID-19 panic has shown us that science really needs skeptics. In fact, he says every major scientific advance challenged the settled science of its day and was often denounced as pernicious, false, or even dangerous. Well, that sounds familiar. Modern blood transfusion, for example, developed in the late 1600s, then banned for nearly a century by a hostile medical establishment, canceling tens of millions of lives on the altar of groupthink and hostility to skeptics. The conclusion here is whether pandemic, climate change, institutional racism, or whatever the next crisis is they're going to conjure up next, we have a fundamental right to tenaciously defend the transparency and tolerance that constitutes science itself so that it remains among humanity's crowning achievements, and so that we preserve this golden age that would astound our ancestors. That's some pretty good stuff. I'll have this in the show notes. You can check them out at lovingliberty.net. Let's go to the phone. I've got Sam on the line from Missouri. Hello, Sam. Hey, good to talk to you as always, Brian. Um, In response to the whole mask issue, which um, it's not too bad here yet. Hopefully it won't get that way. I just got an announcement. What? From Pam. Yeah. Monday, Walmart is going to start asking us to wear masks, demanding us to wear masks. I just got well, the same I announcement, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I won't go in there then. Um, you know, um, you know, this is just going overboard. You know, and the more I dig into this, I mean, they've just had a story out of Florida. That's my wife, Trish, by the way. Uh, yeah. Uh, that Hi, Trish. jumped in there. Hi. Um. Here's the thing. We already had Florida. Basically, it's come out of Florida that there was egregious errors in testing down there, that their testing was way over the top. And here it turns out that their testing was in total error. And I can't tell you how many times, Brian, I keep seeing people that have um, proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that you can be tested repeatedly and one minute come up negative, next minute come up positive, next minute come up negative. And yet we're all running on something uh, that is you know, becoming more and more bogus every day as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, basically where I come from on this is, number one, the freedom issue, but number two, I cannot stand to be lied to. And, I, uh, and I'll tell you what, there's anything that makes me madder than anything is being lied to. When I know, when I know the truth is being um, kicked to the side, 
And I understand, I mean, I understand on the one thing about private property, but does Walmart take uh, uh, government funds for anything? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure at some level they're in bed with government uh, in order to be as big as they are. Yeah, well, if it's if they're taking federal funds and they're not private property, then as far as I'm concerned, no. And particularly if they have a monopoly in a given area, that monkey wrench into the issue too. Well, I I'll I'll admit I don't want to sound like I'm just bagging on Walmart. I've never been all that enthusiastic about going to Walmart, but uh, now I have an excuse I've not to go. Either. When it's the only place you got to go, what do you do? Okay, now that's yeah. a good point. In smaller communities, that may be the the hub. Yeah, and that's that's what's got me aggravated, the fact that they're going to impose this. Um, the only thing I know to do is just go in there. If you don't want to wear one, just say you have a medical condition. I know, um, I know over at Kate Daly's website, she's got several things you can download over there. Very well for quite a few people that have um, utilized them over there. So... You know, that may be what it may boil down to. You may have just a site that you have a medical condition, or if you can get a doctor to sign off on something, that's even better yet. Sam, it's great to hear from you. Trish, nice to meet you as well. Nice to meet you, too. All right. Take care, Brian. Have a good day. Hey, thank you much. 801-331-8113, if you would like to call in on the show today. Let's get right back to the phone. Hello there. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hello, caller. Yes, am I live? There we go. Now you are live. Well, I mean, Brian, the bottom line is we're trusting people that cannot count dollars and cents. They have, they spend more money than they've got coming in. And we're hearing reports all across this country of people beginning the process to be tested and can't wait to be tested because it's taking too long, yet when they go home with failure to be tested, they're being diagnosed positive, and they've never been tested. I'm starting to hear multiple reports of that. Boy, that that sure sounds shady. It's shady. This is politics now. They've decided to take COVID-19 and use this to destroy our way of life during this election and bring down the economy. They want to kill all the mom-and-pop stores and the small businesses. And this is a takeover of big corporate America. And the American people need to be defiant. They need to resist and not be obedient. Yeah. Now, that's going to have to be an individual call on each person's part, but I, I, like right. to, I like to think that courage is contagious in that regard, and one person who says no, or maybe not even no, but hell no, you know, leads to other people saying, hey, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Well, I was in 7-Eleven yesterday, and the guy says, you have a mask? I said, no. He goes, I'll have to ask you to leave. And I said, you know, you're a puppet. And everyone was looking at me. And he says, well, I have the right to refuse your service. And I said, does that make you feel powerful? Do you feel powerful? I was like, you guys all need to wake up. And I walked out. I, I went to another business, got what I wanted, went in there without a mask. No one said a word. So 
it's going to be up to the, you're going to have to, you know, you want to be an obedient person. That's exactly what they want. And, and American people need to wake up because these numbers are fake. And there's, you're taking numbers from people that can't balance your own tax dollars. And if they can't do that, why are you trusting them with the mathematics of the COVID-19 virus? Amen. Even though Dr. Fauci said, you can trust me. <laughs> yeah, okay. sure. I love it when a politician tells me that. Well, you know, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we're paying the World Health Organization $440 million a year. We were, thanks to President Trump pulling us out of that. And, and China's only paying $40 million. Go figure. I know. It's, it's crazy. People got to step up. You got to get rid of these rhinos and these lifelong politicians that have been in office for decades and have gotten nothing done but enrich themselves. That's all they've done. Can I suggest serve the people? Can I suggest that uh, while there is this political angle to it and, and voting the bums out is certainly one part of the strategy, I think one of the best things that any one of us can do is to draw the line. This is where I remove my consent. And, and when that line is crossed, then, okay, I withdraw my consent. Because that's, yeah, the, that's the single most powerful tool any one of us has at our disposal is, is to either consent or not. And if enough people withdraw their consent, then, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the rule is. I mean, we are, I mean, have you been to the stores? The shelves are still empty on so many different products. Because, here, I'm driving by the COVID-19 of Alta View Hospital right now. No one's in, in, in the testing pen. It's empty. Nobody's lined up. Interesting. Yeah, there's nothing there. There's, there's a tent there with the wind blowing it. Yeah, we we, we got to, uh, people need to wake up. They got to wake up. Don't be a puppet because that's exactly where you are when you, you fear and you put your little mask on and you walk around thinking you're being safe. And if you offend somebody because you're not wearing your mask, well, that's just too bad. If you feel like you're at risk, you stay home. You stay in your house and live your life in that manner. Hey, thanks for calling in, man. Good to hear from you. Yeah, you too, buddy. Take care. Keep up the good fight. I will, and, and I know you will as well. And, and look, here's the thing. The fight can take a lot of different uh, forms. Not everybody is going to take, you know, a head-on approach. Some people are going to, you know, take a more persuasive. I actually saw a friend of mine who is a, uh, an emergency room doctor posted on Facebook today saying, I, I don't know if this is going to change anybody's mind, but he was trying to make the case of this is why I think it's a good idea to wear a mask. And I love this guy because he is one of those individuals who is capable of debating the issue without getting nasty. You know, some people, you know, I am all about saving lives. Well, I don't want to wear a mask. Well, then I hope you get COVID and die. No, I'm not exaggerating. There are people who literally invoke that because you won't do what I say. It's sad. And there are people on the other side. There was a thing called live and let live once upon a time. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about this, about people who like to boss other people. We'll also touch on cancel culture. A great essay from Richard Ebling coming up in the next segment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. If you'd like to get in on the conversation. You know, with everything that has just been topsy-turvy this year, the one thing I have learned that I can count on is the Babylon Bee will always have some relevant, pithy headline. They did not fail me today. Here's the latest headline. Walmart now requires all shoppers to wear pants. (laughs) And a quote from there. I thought this was America. (laughs) Uh, The funny thing is, you know, I... uh, I have to double check sometimes because sometimes you don't know if what the Babylon Bee has written is, is this the legit news site or is this a parody site? What was the headline I saw earlier? Um, a friend had posted uh, another headline from the Babylon Bee. Business owner charged with hate crime for painting over BLM graffiti on his storefront. And the friend who posted this is actually a newspaper reporter. And he said, you know, for a moment, I thought this was real. Until I saw the source. He says, good grief, things have gotten stupid lately. And he's right. I actually had to do a double take myself. Because we've reached the point of absurdity where painting over another person's vandalism is considered a hate crime. Don't ask me how we got here. I'm I'm, I'm not quite sure. But we're there. So, it's bad enough. Walmart wants you to wear a mask. Now they want you to wear pants. Oh, those sons of... Actually, that's how one person responded. (laughs) I'm just grateful there are people who can still make us laugh. All right. Shifting gears here for a moment. I uh, found this one. This was in the archives from Eric Peters. People who like to boss other people. He has a word for them, and I think it's a very uh, valuable word. It's clovers. People who like to tell other people what to do. And he says they're an interesting study. Well, they're odd. At any rate, perhaps disjointed is the better word. They will, for example, talk sententiously about choice, provided it's a choice they approve of, such as abortion or forcing people to associate, but only with certain people. You know, the people they demand others associate with. Ask them about whether you, an already born actual human being, have the right to choose whether to buckle up for safety or buy an airbag. See what sort of response you get. Eric says, I've written about the way they deny all of us the right to choose the type of car that meets our needs and wants rather than what they insist we need and must have. We are not allowed, for example, to buy serviceable, inexpensive A to B transportation like the Renault Quid that sells for less than $5,000 brand new in Asia and India, or even the very high mileage diesel powered cars available in Western European countries like Germany. Because the people who like to tell others what to do and buy cannot abide such freely made choices. And he says it's why America is coming unglued. There is next to nothing in this world more enraging than to be micromanaged by other people. Usually personally very unappealing people. Hillary Clinton, for example, or George W. Bush. And lately, Americans take on Mussolini, Donald Trump who believe they know better than you do how to live your life and are determined to tell you. In fact, he says Orwell might have titled his book Big Bully, only plural. In a democracy, we are bullied by everyone. There's no leaving you alone, but no specific individual such as a king or a fuhrer to hate. Well, there are. 
But in a democracy, they're fungible. Whack-a-mole. Get rid of one, another pops up. It's not really them that's the problem. It's everyone around you. The neighbor, the guy down the road, they will not leave you alone. Now, not personally, perhaps, that would take some courage. Few of these people who enjoy bossing other people would have the guts to try bossing anyone on their own. So they vote for an El Duce, Trump, or a frigid termagant, you-know-who, to do it for them. But he says there used to be limits, and so it was tolerable. You were still able, more or less, to do what you liked. You went to work, did your thing. The people who liked a boss were a presence, but not an omnipresence. Now there's no limit to their presence in our lives. The dam has broken. The sphere of free action available to use continues to grow smaller with each passing year, with each past law. The seat belt and airbag stuff, that was just for openers, a kind of clearing of the throat before the main opera begins. And he says people don't see it, chiefly because they, in the main, are blinkered and cannot think. Now, it doesn't necessarily take a genius IQ, but it does take a learned capacity to reason, which has been systematically and deliberately suppressed and crippled by schools, and for damn good reason, at least from the government's point of view. He says it's not just an unreasonable search, you see. It's about getting dangerous drunks off the road. Seatbelt laws are not in principle an immoral usurpation of a free man's right to make his personal decisions about his welfare. They're there to keep us safe, and much more inevitably follows. It's no accident that we must now submit to being fondled in order to be allowed to fly. This could never have happened had the populace not already been conditioned to random safety checkpoints on the road. But the manufactured dullards cannot grasp it, and so are helpless against it. In fact, many of them welcome it. Most just shrug and accept, because what choice have they got? We're all boxed in, but occasionally, and lately more frequently, there is lashing out in what seems to be disproportionate berserker rage. The case of a road rage killing of a four-year-old girl who had the bad luck to be riding in a truck with her dad who got into a dispute at 60 miles an hour with some other guy over the other's driving skills. Much more was at issue than slow driving or cutting someone off. People cut people off or tailgated or slowpoked 30 years ago. Gunfire did not happen. It was literally unheard of. The difference 30 years later, he says, is that people are aerosol cans in the microwave set on high. By a system, by other people acting under its auspices who will not leave them alone ever. Not in their cars, not in their homes, not when they travel, not when they go to work, not in their recreations. Even their family lives are no longer private. Other people intrude everywhere. One day, there's an eruption. The pressuring hate for them explodes. All it requires is an object, something to focus on. And typically, it's over something trivial, or at least something that 30 years ago might have ended in a few flipped birds and some well-chosen adjectives about the other person's parentage. But he says it's getting out of hand because the system is out of hand. People didn't shoot up schools 30 years ago, and there were just as many guns in private hands. No one asks why this is. Instead, they blame the guns, which is like blaming forks for fatness. And the riot is only beginning to pick up speed. This healthcare stuff that is being forced by people who like to boss other people to buy an insurance policy is going to light the afterburners, and then we'll really see. People who like to tell other people what to do now have weaponized anthrax at their disposal. 
because there is absolutely no facet of our existence that cannot be said in some way to affect our health, which is now the business of other people, the people who like to boss other people around. Whether actually or just possibly, well, that's irrelevant. The mere assertion for doing X or failing to do Y might affect our health, that's more than sufficient. That precedent was set years ago, decades ago, with the seatbelt law and also probable cause-free cause random stopping of motorists to dragnet search for drivers who may have been drinking. He says, take note of the fact that doctors now inquire as to whether you own a gun. Hint, hint. If you can't see it coming, you're intellectually glaucomic. A nation of fear-addled sissies, busybodies, and bullies that genuflex or orgasms whenever safety is mentioned and who cannot grok the idea of leaving other people alone and minding their own business deserves what's coming. He says it's just a shame that not all of us do. Now, I'll tell you what's remarkable is he wrote this piece five years ago. You think about some of the examples he gave, and they seem pretty tame by comparison to some of the stuff that we're expected to submit to today. It's getting worse. That feeling that the walls are closing in, that's not your imagination. So what do we do about it? All right, in the minute that I have left here, let me give you my best college try with the understanding that uh, this is free advice and it's worth exactly what you paid for it. You and I individually have to choose for ourselves. What is the line in the sand? At what point am I going to continue to obey and knuckle under and, and give my consent to this? And at what point am I going to say, I'm done asking permission? Now, none of this denotes that you do something radical or violent or otherwise, you know, noteworthy that draws attention to yourself. Simply withdrawing approval is often enough to, to remove yourself from the situation. Now, you can't do it in every instance, and I understand it's, you're not going to be perfectly free under such a situation. But to the extent that you do make a stand, to the extent that you talk about it with other people, speak the truth with love, plant those seeds, let them germinate, let them take hold on their own, let them come to the truth on their own terms. Do not apply blunt force to try to get your point across. That's what the people who like to boss other people do. And it's immoral. We can't stoop to their level. This is The Brian Hyde Show.